Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, Benjamin from the Nature Podcast here. We're coming to the end of the year, and as has become something of a tradition around these parts, this is the time where we like to take a look back at some of the stories we covered in the podcast over the last 12 months. In this special clip show, members of the team will be picking out a piece they made in 2021 that really stood out to them and telling us why they enjoyed making it. You'll hear stories about an AI that argues, a journey through COVID's unequal toll in California, and the story of a researcher eavesdropping on an Arctic glacier. Before them, though, Sharmini Bundell's up with her choice. So the favourite story that I've picked from 2021 is the one about a brain interface that was used to type out thoughts. And I always love how sci-fi these kind of things sound and the field of brain computer interfaces is just fascinating. The fact that you can get a machine to sort of translate the thoughts in your head into something digital is amazing. And in this particular case, the trick that they used of getting the participant to think about handwriting and imagine that they're writing something physically with their hand was just a clever workaround to really speed up their ability to type, which was very cool. And it's always nice to cover stories where you can see applications to this. You can see, hey, this could actually really help people maybe one day in the future. From our 12th of May show, here's Sharmini's pick of 2021. Brain Computer Interfaces, or BCIs, are, as the name suggests, interfaces between the brain and a computer. They can read electrical signals in the brain and translate those signals, via an algorithm, into computer actions like moving a cursor or typing. This week, researcher Frank Willett from Stanford University and his team have demonstrated a faster way to use BCIs for writing, which could allow people who've been paralysed to communicate more efficiently. They recruited a volunteer who couldn't move his hand due to paralysis and then asked him to imagine writing with a pen. The algorithm was trained on his brain patterns while he thought about writing. And after a while, he was able to type text on a computer screen with impressive speed. I called Frank and started by asking him how brain-computer interfaces work. So BCI works by recording the neural activity in some way. So here it was recorded with an implanted array of electrodes. Then there's some algorithm that finds the relevant patterns in that activity and translates it. And what kind of routes have people tried to develop so far in in trying to 
translate brain signals into written text? And how did your approach differ? Yeah, I guess there's a lot of different approaches. I mean, the one that was most on our minds was this point and click method, which we think was the prior best, where you're, you're moving this computer cursor on a screen to each key that you want to hit, and you click on that key and it types that letter. So this is, is different from that. So instead of you know, moving a single cursor from key to key, instead you're trying to handwrite something, you're just quickly trying to write these string of letters, and we show that on the screen. And how does that work? Yeah, it's well, that, that's the magic. That's the secret sauce of the algorithm. <laughs> and that's basically just pattern recognition. So it's just looking at the patterns of neural activity and it's, you know, it's remembering it knows what kind of pattern is associated with each letter. And then when it sees that in the neural recordings, it types that letter out. So the neurons that are firing in my head now when I try and handwrite something, if I then subsequently become paralyzed, those same neurons are still firing. The patterns are still there for you to observe. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It, it does sound incredibly complicated because it, it sounds like you would need to know the inner workings of the brain, you know, this like in-depth neuroscientific understanding. But actually, you're kind of uh, avoiding that by using pattern recognition. So is that like a machine learning system? Yeah, exactly. It, it just learns based on having seen it many times before. So that's part of the calibration process where we collect data of the participant trying to write all of these different letters multiple times. And then the algorithm is able to then, you know, through those many repetitions, kind of form an image of what each one looks like. So you've so far tried this out on one participant, and they've basically had to do a load of training to show a computer what trying to write A looks like and B. So at the moment, it's personalized to their brain. Definitely in the future, we want to look towards ways of making that process a lot faster. And we also hope that, you know, when we translate this to additional people, we'll be able to leverage that so it won't take as long on those additional people, right? There'll be some shared structure. And there's a video online of this actually working. So comparing your participant using your new handwriting-based BCI system compared to a previous method. And the, the cursor method is, is, is very impressive, but it's relatively slow. So I can see them moving the cursor around to Y-O-U space M, whereas... Your participant here, it's more like Y-O-U space M-U-S-T. It's it's noticeably and impressively faster. What's the comparison there? The original point-and-click typing device peaked at around 40 characters per minute, whereas this new method does 90 characters per minute. So 90 characters per minute is about 18 words per minute, which is kind of exciting because it starts to get into the range that's maybe comparable to normal handwriting speeds, or in this case, um, kind of comparable to how you would type on a smartphone. So the technology that you're using of implanting an electrode array into the brain, then communicating that, that's kind of the same as what's been done previously. But the novelty is then using handwriting. So what's been the benefit of that? The reason why we think that handwriting was much more effective than the point and click cursor movements, because when you try to handwrite each different character, that evokes a very different pattern of neural activity for each character, which is great for, for BCIs because that makes things easy to distinguish in the neural activity. You know, when you're doing like a point and click cursor, right, when you're going to nearby keys, that 
evokes very similar patterns. And given that uh, at the moment it does require quite a lot of setup, um, is this going to be widely usable? I mean, obviously we hope that, yeah, it can one day be turned into a product that anyone who has severe paralysis who can't speak or communicate could get something like this implanted. I think in the future you could imagine if things really you know, develop along really nicely, maybe this could be part of a general purpose device that lets you control a computer. So even if you're, let's say you're spinal cord injured and you can move your head and face and still talk, well, maybe this could be part of a general device that lets you type on a computer and click things more easily. So what is the next step now for you in this research? Yeah, well, with the handwriting stuff, I think one big theme that emerged for future work is kind of making it much more streamlined for for practical use. And in particular, um, the calibration times, making that faster than also... Similarly, like when things change across days, so sometimes you get different patterns of neural activity on different days because the implant device maybe moves around a little bit, so you record from different neurons. And so instead of having to retrain it every day, it would be great if instead you were able to seamlessly in the background kind of keep track of these changes. So basically minimizing this training time and making it more streamlined. Frank Willett from Stanford University there, ending Shamley's pick of 2021. Next up on this special roundup show, Nick Petrich Howe is here. So the piece I've picked this year, we ended up calling The AI That Argues Back. A fun title for what was quite a fun story. So this was about an artificial intelligence created by IBM that was able to participate live in debates with humans. I had originally thought that we could get it to debate me on the show or something like that, but technically it was impractical um, and it also would have totally crushed me in any debate. But I did get some clips of it, I should say her actually, I got some clips of her debating with people and it was an interesting challenge for artificial intelligence and I had a lot of fun making this one. So yeah, that's my pick. So from our 17th of March show, here's the AI that argues back. In 2019, a historic debate occurred. Greetings, Harish. I have heard you hold the world record in debate competition wins against humans. But I suspect you've never debated a machine. Welcome to the future. I will argue that we should subsidize preschools. That right there is the voice of an artificial intelligence called Project Debater, who came up with the statement and the whole debate herself. In fact, she has successfully debated humans live several times. On the podcast, we've talked about a few different AIs. Ones that can play board games, some that can play video games, and AIs like Watson who competed on Jeopardy. But for the principal investigator of Project Debater from IBM, known Slonim, these challenges aren't tough enough. Although it is clear that all these grand challenges were extremely instrumental to the the development of artificial intelligence, these uh, board games still lie in what we refer to as the comfort zone of artificial intelligence. Things like board games and video games have a clear win state that an AI can try hundreds of techniques to achieve. Not so in the case of debate. 
Here, winners are tricky to identify. But now IBM have developed such a system by honing a few different AI technologies, such as argument mining and understanding of human language, and getting each of these different AI components to work together, all while squaring off against an opponent. Project Debater, who looks a little bit like the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey, has been able to face off against top-tier human debaters in front of a live audience, such as the debate I played earlier, which took place in California against Harish Natarajan, a world-class debater. Despite this challenging environment, Project Debater has done pretty well for herself. In the three public debates that we had, uh, we lost one and uh, we were able to uh, win another one, and it was nearly a tie in the third one. And in addition, I think it was interesting to note that uh, in all the debates that we had, we also asked the audience another question. Which side better enriched your knowledge during the debate? And in all the debates, a project debater obtained clearly better scores than the human opponent uh, on this question, which was perhaps expected, but still uh, nice to see. This week in Nature, Noam and his team are publishing a comprehensive rundown of the technology involved in Project Debater. But before we get into how the system works, it's worth quickly running through how the debates it participated in were laid out. To start, there's a motion. What are we arguing about here? For example, should preschools be subsidised? Next, there's opening remarks. Four minutes of argumentation about why your side is right. Then, after hearing what the opponent has to say, there's four minutes of rebuttal. And finally, two minutes of closing remarks. So, at the start, Project Debater is given a position to argue for, and then has 15 minutes to prepare the opening remarks. For decades, research has demonstrated that high-quality preschool is one of the best investments of public dollars, resulting in children who fare better on tests and have more successful lives than those... So here are some of the remarks that Project Debater is coming up with. But how is she doing it? Well, she draws on a wealth of human argumentation. First of all, it has a large collection of around 400 million news articles from from LexisNexis nearly 10 billion sentences. And when the debate starts, the system is using various AI components to detect uh, short pieces of text that should satisfy three criteria. They should be relevant to the topic. They should be argumentative in nature. That is, they should argue something about the topic, not just be relevant. And finally, they should support our side of the debate. And after finding these short pieces of text, the system is using other AI components uh, like text clustering and etc. in order to glue these short pieces together into a meaningful narrative. Now, finding these bits of text is a huge challenge. Identifying the bits that meet those criteria are part of what Gnome's team have been working on since the project started in 2012. Project Debater largely achieves this through having lots of data, and ranking how relevant those bits of sentences are. She then groups these sentences into topics, using Wikipedia to help. After all that, Project Debater has to assemble those sentences into a coherent argument. Again, not an easy task. It's hard to say exactly what it is that makes a debate compelling. And then there's rebuttal. For starters, I sometimes listen to opponents and wonder, what do they want? 
would they prefer poor people on their doorsteps begging for money? You need somehow to respond to the arguments of the opposition. And this starts by really understanding the words articulated by the human debater. And, and for that purpose, we used Watson's speech recognition capabilities out of the box. But of course, you need to go beyond the words. You need somehow to understand the gist of the human speech and the main claims being raised. And to that end, we developed several techniques that typically rely on the same principle of trying to anticipate in advance what kind of arguments the opposition might use and then listen to determine whether indeed the opposition was making these claims and then respond accordingly. Altogether, as Noam mentioned, Project Debater was pretty good at debating. Compared with other AIs, Project Debater was ranked more highly by audiences, and close to that of a human expert. But not without some limitations. Sometimes she found it difficult to make an argument flow like a real human does. And, not too surprisingly, she kind of argued like a machine with lots of facts and figures, and not as much emotion as a human debater. But whether or not Project Debater is better or worse than a human, it's a big step for the field. Finding arguments in human written text, so-called argument mining, and language generation, well, these are tricky tasks for an AI, as AI researcher Elena Cabrio explains. Even for humans, for which debating is among the primary cognitive activities, I mean, we, we do it every day. So even when we debate, we need to apply a wide range of language understanding and language generation capabilities. So for a machine, being able actually to address all these tasks at the same time in an automated way is actually a, a big improvement in the field. For Elena, who was not involved in this project, the ability of AIs to search through vast amounts of text and find core arguments could help with an ever-growing problem in the modern world. Information overload. The growing of the web, the increasing number of textual data that are published every day have actually highlighted the need to process such data in an automated way, to be able to identify, structure and summarize this huge amount of information. People like us are more and more exposed to information, online newspapers, blogs, online debate platforms, social network. So argument mining has actually the potential to help us with that because it provides the techniques to sift through this ever increasing amount of data and provide us with the relevant evidence items that we can find in them. Noam feels similarly and sees Project Debater as more of a collaborator with humans potentially helping them find arguments to assist their own debates or speeches. For both Elena and Noam, the next steps for this kind of research are to try and improve these AI's abilities to understand language as humans use it. What makes a good argument? What is convincing? Why is this compelling? But for now, Project Debater has given an insight into what this sort of technology could look like. Thanks for this final opportunity to speak out in this debate and thanks Harish Natarajan. One might say that this conversation can serve no purpose anymore, but I feel differently. When you saw Project Debater up there debating with people, what, what did that feel like? I was uh, proud. That was Noam Slonim from IBM Research. You also heard from Elena Cabrio from Université Côte d'Azur. Head over to the show notes where you'll find links to Noam's paper and to all the other stories you'll hear in this year's clip show.
Now, normally the middle of the nature podcast is where we have the research highlights, which are, of course, a couple of snappy stories from the wide world of science. And this clip show is no different. Here's Dan Fox, who's chosen a couple of his standouts. Picking my favourite research highlight of the year was a bigger challenge than I thought. I've recorded over 60 of them in 2021, and I like to think they've all been interesting, unexpected, or sometimes just funny in their own special way. And while there have been some great ones, from auto-injecting syringe pills to rabbits that do handstands, I think the two I've picked really typify the breadth of what we cover in the research highlights. Some weird sea creatures, and the psychology behind conversations outstaying their welcome. When it comes to regenerative powers, I'm going to stick my neck out and say that sea slugs might have a head start over other animals because some are able to grow a whole new body from just their severed head. Researchers observed that two species of the Sacoglossan sea slug sometimes severed their entire bodies from the neck down. Their heads then continued to move around and eat algae. A slug's head regenerated a heart within a week and the entire body within three weeks. Slugs more than a year old did not have disability. They simply died when their heads were severed. The disembodied heads can't digest the algae they consume and the researchers hypothesise that the heads rely on chloroplasts in the algae. Structures that use photosynthesis to make energy that can power the slug until its digestive system regenerates. It's still unclear why the slugs shed their entire bodies, but the team thinks it might be a way to rid themselves of parasites. Get your head around that research at Current Biology. Would you say that I've been talking for too long? because new data suggests that when two people talk, one party almost always wants the conversation to end before the other. Researchers asked over 800 people to complete an online survey about a recent conversation. The team also paired up 252 strangers in laboratory studies and asked them to chat for between 1 and 45 minutes. In both groups, around two-thirds of participants felt ready for the conversation to end before it did, but one-third wanted the chat to continue. In the lab studies, none had any idea when their partner wanted to stop talking, and all underestimated how different their partner's desires were from theirs. The researchers conclude that ending a conversation is a coordination problem caused by the fact that individuals keep information from each other. And as a result, most conversations appear to end when no one wants them to. If you're not ready for that research to end, you can read the paper in full at Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. Dan Fox with a couple of his favourite research highlights from 2021. Up next, here's Noah Baker with his choice. 
When Ben asked me to think about what I thought the best audio that I'd produced this year was, my mind, again, for the second year in a row, immediately went to Coronapod. 2021 was a year that was as dominated by COVID in many ways as 2020 was. It was just a kind of a different set of questions that we were asking and a different set of problems that scientists were trying to solve. Post-vaccine, the introduction of variants became such a dominant discussion within the pandemic. So then I thought back over the many coronapods that we've published this year and there's another theme that we've talked about in coronapod a lot which has become an incredibly important theme across the pandemic and that's equity vaccine equity in particular has been something which we've talked about a lot because it's so fundamental to the global response trying to get vaccines to people across the world in a fair and equitable way has huge benefits not just to those people but to the whole world the pandemic isn't over until it's over everywhere and on the theme of equity, there's really one episode of Coronapod that stands out. It's a special that I produced with Amy Maxman, one of the other founders of Coronapod, and it was based on reporting that she did and recordings that she made in the San Joaquin Valley in California. She spent a lot of time with farm workers to really dig into this problem of inequity in health, and the disparities she found were humongous. And it's also a story about the research that's been done into inequity. This isn't a new phenomenon. There are quotes in here from an epidemiologist called Rudolf Virchow from more than a century ago. But research is one thing, action is another. And we really wanted to explore why there was this disconnect between research and action, which is something that it's starkly visible in the San Joaquin Valley. So I remember sitting down with Amy and talking through her reporting. She sent me hours of recordings she'd made on her phone from audio interviews from when she was in the field. A lot of them were kind of scratchy. A lot of them were grabbed in the moment. And then I sat down and I recorded hours of interviews with Amy. And from all of those kind of messy moments, I tried to give a sense of what her reporting journey was like and what she learned throughout it. Now, it was also a very long piece, so what I'm going to do is just pull out the very beginning. And with any luck, it will give you a bit of a flavour of what's to come. If you want to hear the rest, then there'll be links in the show notes to where you can find the whole documentary. I, for one, think this is a very important story. I hope you enjoy it. Inequalities in health and the origin of ill health are problems for which the solutions lie, in many respects, outside the healthcare sector. This is a quote from a major report commissioned in the UK in 1980. Its lead author, clinician and medical scientist Douglas Black, concluded that to remedy disease disparities, the government needed to put more money into public education, public health, and social services, and also tax the wealthy at higher rates to make society a little bit more equal. The report made waves in health policy circles. It resulted in the WHO leading an assessment of health disparities in a dozen countries. But the recommendations didn't really gain any traction among policymakers. And that's not the first time that recommendations from researchers like this haven't really been heeded. The plutocracy, which draw very large amounts from the Upper Silesian mines, did not recognize Upper Silesians as human beings, but only as tools. This is an excerpt of the writing of Rudolf Virchow, a scientist in the 19th century in Prussia, in an area that's now Poland. And he was asked to go investigate some typhus epidemics going on in this mining region called Upper Silesia. He documented all of these sort of social factors that went into why people in this region were hit so hard by typhus. And those included illiteracy and working without any protections. And so kind of rather than just saying poverty leads to disease, he actually went further and said, 
Let's talk about the system that leads to people being poor. And then he proposes something he calls a radical solution. The worker must have part in the yield of the whole. There are countless more examples of reports from scientists like this, pointing towards the importance of social disparities in public health. And yet, in the USA at least, very little has changed right up until this pandemic. My name is Amy Maxman. I've been reporting on the pandemic since its beginnings, and last fall I stepped back from writing news with an MIT Night Science Journalism Fellowship. During those months, I spent a lot of time reading about the history of public health. But as I was doing that, I wanted to make sure that I was still seeing what was happening during this unprecedented time. I wanted to report. And some of the things I had been reading about were playing out in my own backyard in California. In this podcast, I'm going to take you with me through some of the last eight months of my reporting in part of California called the San Joaquin Valley. When I first started reporting, I wasn't really sure where it was going to take me, so I didn't take a fancy recording kit with me. This podcast is just made up of recordings from my phone or notes I grabbed as I went. So you're going to hear me talking to my sources or typing while I'm doing the interviews. This isn't a slick audio production. It's just my journey, and it's one I won't soon forget. This is a Coronapod special. In this episode, one reporter's journey to investigate the deadly toll of inequality. I'm in a small town called El Cerrito, which is near Oakland and near San Francisco. And just about two and a half to three hours away from me is the San Joaquin Valley. And that was where this summer COVID was really surging, far more so than where I am in the Bay Area. It was an outbreak. Everyone was like over 300 people tested positive. Wow. It's not a lifestyle choice. They work in packing houses. They work in the fields. And if people's lives are in danger and people are not even aware of it, they don't have the right to choose. There's going to be consequences for that. The San Joaquin Valley is like an agricultural heartland. That's where a lot of the food that feeds the U.S. is grown. Uh, uh, Sunflowers. Almonds. More almonds. There's also a lot of meatpacking plants there and food processing plants. The majority of the people who work on the farms or in the plants are immigrants, and most of those immigrants are Latino or Latinx. If the San Joaquin Valley were its own state, it would be one of the poorest in the U.S., This is Leo Diaz, 60 years old. It could have been me sitting at my breakfast table eating pozole. He died after 20 years. Lastly in this year's roundup is my pick of 2021. This was a difficult choice for me and there were a bunch of stories I could have chosen. But in the end, I decided on this one. And it's a story about a researcher. Yevgeny Podolsky and his quest to use a seismometer to listen to the bottom of a glacier. Now, I was really lucky that Yevgeny recorded a lot of sounds on his research trip to Greenland, which really added some immersion to the piece. And it was a great opportunity to tell a story where the process of doing science, in this case in a rather inhospitable environment, was central to the narrative. As with Noah's pick, this story was a little bit longer, so I'll just play you a taster. Done. Position is taken. Okay. Okay. 
On the 21st of July 2019, in a fjord at the foot of the towering Bowdoin Glacier in northwest Greenland, a handful of people on two small boats lowered a heavy seismometer about the size of a small fridge into the sea. Equipped with an array of sensors, the probe descended 240 meters and anchored to the sea floor, where glacier meets rock. My colleague once told that it looks like Sputnik. This is Yevgeny Podolsky, a glaciologist from Hokkaido University in Japan, describing his seismometer. You drop into water and then hope it will come back. But no matter how hard you hope, things don't always go according to plan. This is the story of Yevgeny's unconventional quest to eavesdrop on a glacier. He had a hunch that his measurements could offer new insights into our warming world, but getting to that point proved more difficult than anyone bargained for. But more on that later. First, some background. If you want to know what is the future of ice discharged into ocean, you want to know the basal conditions. And this is the crux of glaciology where a lot of effort is put because this is what we want to know, but it's very difficult to access. Yevgeny's recent work has focused on Greenland, where the melting of vast ice sheets is set to have global consequences. Now, researchers often monitor the behaviour of glaciers by measuring seismic activity. But in such an inhospitable environment, that can be tough. From swirling Arctic winds to falling icebergs, isolating the right seismic signal can be very difficult. It's ridiculously powerful seismic field. And when these icebergs fall, we can recognize it 500 kilometers away on stations in Canada. These events are so loud that they ruined US attempts to monitor underground Soviet nuclear tests during the Cold War. Yevgeny wanted to find a way to cut through that noise and listen for the subtle movements of Greenland's enormous ice sheet by tapping into seismic noise, not at the surface, but at the base of the glacier. Often, though, that requires a lot of drilling, which can be difficult and dangerous. So Yevgeny had another idea. So the idea was, why don't we drop as ocean bottom seismometer, which is used by marine geophysicists. And in our case, we could do that. We will be sitting this in this quiet place, safe from this monster icebergs floating above us without being touched and destroyed. And we will be listening, like eavesdropping, exactly on the surface on which this massive slab of ice is moving several meters a day. Yevgeny's idea to drop a probe to the foot of the glacier seemed scientifically sound. But when it came to actually trying it out, well, that proved more challenging. I was asked several questions by my colleagues like, do you have port? No. Do you have research vessel with a crane? No, we don't have. Do you have electricity? No. Do you have technicians? Uh, no. Do you have permissions? No. And is it risky? Yes, was my answer. And then, okay, let's do it. Now, here is where Yevgeny's story takes a somewhat adventurous turn. 
he simply didn't have access to the kind of resources seismologists usually use to carry out readings on the ocean floor. So he had to get creative and garnered the help of some Inuit Greenlanders who know the area better than anyone. I assembled this equipment with my hands in the hunter's hut. We transported by little rubber boat to another fisherman's tiny boat. We traveled to the fjord and make final preparations next to the coast covered with whale blood because there is subsistence hunting in the area for novel. And then we make a very fast operation because we don't want to experience this uh, calving-generated tsunami, which can happen at any time. Mindful that skyscraper-sized icebergs could fall and overwhelm their tiny boats at any moment, Yevgeny and his team of researchers and Inuit people lifted the probe into the water. From our 28th of July podcast, that was my pick of 2021. So there we have it. A few of our podcast highlights from the past 12 months. And that's it for this special roundup. But we'll be back very soon with another regular edition of the Nature Podcast. In the meantime, if you want to hear even more great stories from 2021, head over to nature.com slash podcast. I've been Benjamin Thompson. Thanks for listening. See you all soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.